Amen. What a wonderful song to lead into our message this morning. Reminded of the words of John the Baptist where he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. As you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 5, our text will be verses 33 through 42. I'm actually going to begin by going back and referencing part of the scripture reading this morning. And I trust that you will see the correlation between these two passages of scripture. Because it is evident as the apostles here are suffering persecution that it is not their own reputation that they are defending. It is not for their own success that they are doing this work, but because they are called of God and their desire is to glorify Him. And as we come to the culmination of the message this morning at the end of this chapter, chapter 5 of Acts, you'll see that. I just want to go back and reverence a couple of things Peter says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. In other words, this is something, Christian, that we should expect. We, don't, we should not be obnoxious. We're not picking fights. But neither do we back away from gospel discussions. And we should be willing and ready and with the compassion of Christ be bold by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the truth. No matter how it is responded to. He says in verse 13, But rejoice as much as ye are partakers in Christ's sufferings. We'll see that as exactly what the apostles do after they are beaten and they are sent out after this mock trial by the Sanhedrin. They praise God that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. That is an evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit. That does not come naturally to us. In verse 14, Peter says, If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Well, the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. We see that evidenced in the apostles. Here's the point I'm making by going back and forth between these two passages this morning. By starting here in 1 Peter 4, and now we're going to look back in Acts chapter 5. It is that the same God that the apostles serve is the same God we serve, the same gospel they preach is the same gospel we preach. The same Holy Spirit that empowered them is the same Holy Spirit who enables, empowers, and indwells us. And though we may not be facing the exact same circumstances of persecution yet, understand that the enemies of the gospel will oppose the gospel and its messengers. We're going to actually go back and read verse 29. And read then the first few verses into our text. In Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 29, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Hey, that is the same gospel message this morning. It is just as appropriate that the Spirit of God would say to every one of us, we put Jesus Christ on the cross. We may not have stood in a mob 2,000 years ago and shaken our fist in the air and screamed out, crucify him, crucify him. But our sin put Jesus on that cross. We were guilty. Before our salvation, we were the enemies of God, Romans 5 and verse 10. 
Jesus died on the cross for our sin. He shed his blood on the cross. As a matter of fact, even as Christ was dying on the cross as the sacrifice for our sin, what did he pray for those who were crucifying him? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as we face persecution and people oppose us for proclaiming the gospel and we begin to suffer for Christ, that ought to be our heart's prayer for our persecutors. Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They've been blinded by Satan. They're not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. And he has blinded the minds of those who have not yet believed. The glorious light of the gospel is not that shined in their heart. They've not repented and turned to Christ to become a new creation. They cannot, in the fullest sense, understand salvation as those of us who put our faith in Christ have experienced it and understand it. But understand, and the first main point this morning is that the enemies, God's enemies, will oppose his gospel and his messengers. Skip down now to verse 33. When they, this is a Sanhedrin, when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. The reaction of the Sanhedrin to the gospel message and the, to the gospel message and the courageous conviction of these apostles is one of rage. Literally, when it says that they were filled with indignation, it literally translates from the Greek, they were sawn in sunder. They were enraged. How different from the phrase used on the day of Pentecost when, Pentecost when Peter and the apostles preached the gospel. And these who heard said, men and brethren, what shall we do? The Bible says they were pricked in their hearts. What a difference to be pricked in your heart by conviction and to say, God, what is it that I should do? I want the way of salvation. I want your forgiveness. I want eternal life. I understand I'm a sinner in need of the Savior. How different, how vastly different from this reaction to the Sanhedrin that wanted to, in a murderous rage, kill the apostles. And yet, we ought to expect that kind of opposition as we share the gospel. Some are going to be pricked in their heart with conviction. They may not come to Christ right away. We can plant the seed, we can water the seed. But we understand, according to Jesus' parable of the seed, that some of that seed that we scatter, the gospel is going to fall on good ground, and it's going to take root, and it's going to spring up, and that takes time. But we also know that there are going to be those who are going to literally be sawn in sunder. They are going to be filled with rage, murderous rage. They plotted the apostles' death even as they plotted Jesus' death. This is the same group that had plotted. This is the same high priest who at Jesus' mock trial tore his robes and said, what further evidence do we need? He, this man is guilty of blasphemy, which Jesus absolutely is not because he is the Son of God, the Messiah that he claimed to be. He completely fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Messiah up to that point in history. He evidenced through his power of miraculous miracles and through the message that he preached that he is Messiah. And yet they had rejected that. They continue to reject the gospel. See, though, in this passage, how merciful is God the Father who would again give the gospel to this exact group of political and religious leaders who had crucified his son, who had rejected his message. And yet, through the apostle Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, they receive the gospel again. What a merciful God. But I also want you to see that God is sovereign over his enemies as we look at verses 34 to 39 in just a minute. 
The Bible says in verse 34, Then stood up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. Now stop and look at that last phrase. That's not an insignificant detail. When he said that he commanded to have the apostles put forth a little space. Here's the question. How then do we know about this discussion that is given verbatim as Gamaliel is quoted? Unless either the apostle Paul, who would still at this point have been the unconverted Saul, was present. Gamaliel was his teacher. Or some of those on the Sanhedrin trusted Christ later. Otherwise, we would not have known this. So God is sovereign over his enemies. He placed Gamaliel in the Sanhedrin to be present at that time. Gamaliel, by the way, was the most renowned and influential leader and rabbi of his day. As a Pharisee, he had the respect of all of the people. And the high priest and the rest of the Sanhedrin had to listen. God used Gamaliel's faulty reasoning and argument to continue the great gospel work that was going on in Jerusalem through the apostles. You say, wait a minute, what do you mean faulty reasoning and logic? This sounds pretty reasonable. Look at the verses with me. You'll see what I mean. He said unto them, verse 35, you men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For if these, for before these days there rode up Thutis, a boasting of himself to be somebody to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. And this man rose up, uh, and this man rose up, Judas, uh, of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him. He also perished, even all as many as obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone, for if this counsel is the work of men, it will come to naught or to nothing. But if it be of God, ye cannot overcome it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. Now, say, well, what's faulty about that? Well, this is a time for them to act. And what's Gamaliel counseling them to do? Back off. Wait. Let's wait and see what happens. Right? He's still continuing the theme of the confusion that had taken place earlier in the same passage of Scripture when they didn't know what was going to happen. And so he's like, well, let's just wait and see what happens. Let's be careful because... Now, now it is true. If this is of God, you cannot overcome it. Amen? But he also says, if it, be, if it is of men, it will come to nothing. Is that true? Ultimately, in the end, yes, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But until Christ comes back as the King of kings and Lord of lords in the second coming, there will be false religion. Even the Antichrist and the false prophet will be worshipped during the tribulation. Think about Islam today, for instance. Is it not a thriving religion? Has it in almost 2,000 years come to nothing? So Gamaliel's reasoning is just a little bit off. He was right. If it's of God, you can't do anything against it. Gamaliel's speech also reveals that he rejected the evidence of the signs and wonders. He says, if this is of God, right? 
So he rejected the signs and wonders that the apostles had done. It just earlier in the passage, one of the big things after Pentecost. And remember at Pentecost, one of those signs was that the apostles were preaching the gospel in languages previously unknown to them. Jews from all over the world had come at Pentecost, this feast, the celebration in Jerusalem. Peter and the apostles are preaching, but they're, they're preaching in languages that they had never studied. They'd never known them before. And they're preaching fluently the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, evidenced of the resurrection of Christ, because the resurrected Christ is the one who sent the Holy Spirit and gave these gifts to the apostles. Also remember that there was a man who was lame from birth. And Peter and John, in the power of the Holy Spirit, spoke and God raised up Jesus Christ. And Peter and John give credit to Jesus Christ himself for raising up the man who had been lame. And not only could that man stand up, not only could he could walk, but he was running and leaping, the Bible says, and climbing up the stairs to the temple. There were many signs and wonders. There were many evidences of the resurrection. There were many witnesses. Peter and and the apostle says, we are witnesses of these things. Jesus rose. There are others who have witnessed this. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness. And we were eyewitnesses of these things. There were many eyewitnesses. And yet still, Gamaliel himself had refused. He had rejected the preaching of the apostles, which is the word of God. He had rejected the signs and wonders, evidences, irrefutable proof that this message preached by Peter and the apostles is the authentic truth of God. One writer said this, Gamaliel belongs to that class of men whom the most convincing evidence does not convince. They still demand more other evidence, more and more signs. Their answer to all the evidence furnished by Christ is yes, but... Gamaliel lacked one thing, the consciousness of sin. Maybe there's somebody watching by way of live stream this morning. Maybe there's somebody here in person in our worship service. And the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the godly, consistent lives of Christians who've been transformed by His grace and salvation have evidenced to you that the gospel is real. That what Jesus said in John 14, 6 is true. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's no other way to be reconciled to God, to enter into heaven, to have eternal life, than through personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the evidence is there. The reality is there. Maybe the Spirit of God has been working and that is true in your life, but you still continue to reject it with not enough evidence yet. Listen, folks, salvation is by grace through faith. There must come that time when you respond to the evidence. Instead of saying yes, but, to say yes, Lord Jesus. And accept the gift of eternal life. Put your faith in him. He loves you. He wants to save you. It's interesting that nobody in all of this conversation brought attention to the fact that by rejecting and crucifying Jesus, they had already decided that this movement was not of God. 
Gamaliel says, hey, listen, if this is of God, you can't resist it. But wait a minute. Did they not already crucify Jesus Christ? Had they not already been persecuting the apostles? They've already given evidence of the hardness of their heart of unbelief in the way that they had responded to the gospel. And again, I would exhort those maybe watching by live stream or are here this morning as our guest. Maybe somebody has been sharing the gospel with you. And maybe you've been giving them a really hard time. Let me encourage you to reconsider the claims of the gospel and not to reject Christ any longer. But I want you to see not only does God's, God's enemies will oppose his gospel and his messengers and that God is sovereign over his enemies, but number three, that God's sovereignty includes suffering. Look with me in verse 40, if you would. The Bible says of the Sanhedrin of Gamaliel, and to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Do you remember a number of years ago, there was a teenager, American citizen teenager in the Philippines who broke Philippine law and he was caned for it? And the big political stink that that caused here and people were outraged. Recently, there was a lady athlete who went to Russia and there was a great big hullabaloo because she brought in an illegal substance to that country and was imprisoned for breaking the laws of that country. But let me tell you, even suffering in a foreign prison or suffering a caning like that teenager in the Philippines, was nothing compared to this beating. Let me encourage you to understand, this was not getting slapped on the hand with a ruler a few times. Literally, from the Greek, this word beaten can be translated skinned. It literally, Lenski translated, administered a hiding. Where there were, whether it was rods or a three-cord scourge, Historians, scholars are divided on whether it was both were often used by the Sanhedrin. It tore skin off their backs. This was not slight. Under the law, the Jewish law, they could, administer, they could administer 40 stripes. They moved that back to 39 so that they didn't accidentally go over by a miscount. But this was a scourging. This happened in the presence of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel. This would have been willfully public humiliation on the part of the Sanhedrin to humiliate and to discredit the apostles in as public a fashion as they possibly could. Maybe your suffering is not persecution. And I just want to take a little side note to this. Maybe your suffering right now it's taken some other form some may have suffered the loss of a job the rejection of extended family or other things other forms of persecution for christ but maybe there's other suffering that you are enduring there's a wonderful book that i would recommend to you i just read it dr les olala who uh, preached here for a conference a couple of years ago just wrote a book called a new normal and it's not just about finding biblical principles that help you to survive what you're going through. It takes you from understanding and knowing how to deal with the reality of the new normal 
and go all the way through to advancing the kingdom of God through the vehicle of your suffering. It is an excellent read. You can sit down and, and read it in an hour or two. It's a very simple read. It's very biblical. It's very helpful. You can easily grasp the biblical principles there. But you know what? Persecution in our country may be the new normal. Look at the anarchy that's happening in our culture. Do you think that it won't be very long before Christians start getting blamed for some of that? Just like Nero blamed the Christians while Rome was burning. And we need to be ready for a new normal. Hey, let me ask you this question. How many of you like paying $8 a dozen for eggs? And $4 a gallon of gasoline? And everything else going up in price? Hey folks, what if that's the new normal? Are we still going to serve? Are we still going to give? Are we still going to go? Are we still going to be faithful? Or are we going to go into survival mode? Are we going to learn how to thrive in the midst of a new normal? Hey, maybe you've lost a loved one recently. And maybe something else in your life has taken a change and it's permanent. You know what? God is sovereign. And his sovereignty often includes suffering. But I also want you to see that the apostles lived their conviction in the sovereignty of God. They were convicted, convinced. They had a conviction that God is sovereign and they lived it out. So look at verses 41 and 42 as we come to the last two verses of this chapter. And they, the apostles, departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. They rejoiced because God counted them worthy to suffer shame for the name that is above all names. They acknowledged that God in his sovereignty allowed this to happen. God, you counted us worthy to suffer shame for your name. God, you are sovereign. You allowed this to happen. Therefore, we can rejoice knowing that this is part of your plan for us. You know, as I was thinking on this, this is an observation. I wonder if any of the Sanhedrin went away rejoicing. (laughs) We shut them up. We showed those apostles. Feels pretty good watching them get beat like that pacify our rage a little bit i really don't think any of the sanhedrin walked away very happy though in the end you know why because i believe like it or not the reason they were so angry is that they were torn with conviction not in a tender way there were where they would repent and believe but they responded to that conviction with rage so i don't think they went away rejoicing or happy but i guarantee you the apostles did because the bible tells us so isn't that incredible Some people believe that suffering and hardships are signs that you're not in God's will. Contrast that with the apostles who, after they were scourged or beaten, went out of the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted worthy by God to be treated shamefully in in a way that would be publicly humiliating and embarrassing for his name. And then they continued... To obey the Great Commission, God's sovereignty doesn't negate our responsibility. 
They didn't say, well, you know, I want to take another beating like this. And I believe that God is sovereign. Therefore, you know, the gospel is unstoppable. People are going to get saved. So, man, I'm not going to go after this. I'm going to go into hiding. You know, I just got the skin ripped off my back for this beating. I've been publicly humiliated. I'm just going to go on a retreat or a vacation. You know, I'm going to get away for a hiatus or something like that until all this cools down. And when I come back, I'm going to be a lot more strategic about things. No, no. Uh-uh. These men were bold to continue daily to preach the gospel publicly. They went right back to the temple. That's where many of the Sanhedrin were. That's where the temple police were. They went back to Solomon's porch or the portico and they were preaching the gospel. Why? Because God had given them that commission and God said, I am sovereign and I want you to preach my gospel. Jesus had given the apostles directly the great commission of Matthew 28, 19 and 20. And they were preaching the gospel. In Acts chapter 1, 8, Jesus gave them the pattern and where were they supposed to start? In Jerusalem. And what better place in Jerusalem to begin to preach the gospel than right at the temple where people were coming to worship God. But also from house to house, they met together, studying the word of God, having fellowship, unashamed, unafraid, because they lived out their conviction that God is sovereign. And that doesn't mean that my responsibility to obey the great commission has been negated it just reinforces that god has given me that and he who called me is faithful and will perform that which he has commanded me to do he will equip me they did not stop preaching jesus as the christ for a moment they went right back at it one writer said they continued where we may have stopped we often find the threat of social rejection enough to make us keep quiet about who jesus is and what he did for us we need to have the apostles' courage and determination to stand firm for Jesus Christ. And then they constantly and consistently taught and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Daily, in the temple, from house to house. In other words, wherever they went, every day, throughout the day, they were proclaiming Jesus Christ. Do you think God expects us to do any less? Pastor Todd, I don't always have that opportunity. Are you asking God to give you opportunities every day to share the gospel? Are you looking and expecting by faith that God's going to answer that prayer? And will you go as far with the gospel as you have that opportunity? And if you don't get an opportunity to have a direct conversation with somebody, the way that you walk. For instance, the Bible says, provide things honest in the sight of all men. And at work, there may be something where some people want to ask you to do some things that are, that are unethical. Some things that are not honest. And yet, you refuse to succumb to that. Just like the apostles. Because we ought to obey God rather than men. And the Bible says that whatever our hand finds to do, we're to do it with all our might. We're not to do our work at, at our jobs with eye service as men pleasers, but doing the will of God from the heart. We're doing it ultimately to please God. And the way that we work ought to bring glory to his name. So that people see such a difference in us. We don't use the same language they use. We don't talk about the same things they talk about. We don't follow the same trends. The types of fun we have are different because we've been transformed by the gospel. And our very lives ought to be preaching a gospel message so that when we open our mouths to share the gospel or hand somebody a gospel tract, we've already preached them a gospel message the way that we're living. And the gospel information we're handing in a tract or through a gospel testimony or witness is just backing up or reiterating that which we've already preached with our lives. I'll close with this closing, this statement by Lenski. He's a noted Greek scholar and New Testament commentator. He describes the account 
in verses 41 and 42 this way. I found this a very powerful challenge. He said this was the opposite of indecision. The Sanhedrin was in indecision. Even, even Gamaliel, the great teacher, renowned for his wisdom, says, well, 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 now, you know, if this is of man, it won't prosper. But if it's of God, you can't resist it. So, I, you know, I, I would I'd encourage you to just kind of back off and wait and see what happens. The apostles are the exact opposite of that. God gave us a great commission. God is sovereign. God's given us his Holy Spirit. God's given us a message. We're going on no matter what. And if God wants to protect our lives so we can keep on preaching, then God's going to protect our lives and we'll keep on preaching. And if we are murdered for the cause of Christ and we're martyred, then may our deaths bring such glory to Christ that the gospel just explodes and is multiplied. So Paul talked about whether by life or by death. He wanted his life to preach the gospel and God to be glorified. When you have a true, biblical, practical conviction that God is sovereign, then it greatly encourages you with biblical confidence to keep proclaiming the gospel in the face of great suffering because you understand that suffering is part of God's will for us. Understand that God's enemies are going to oppose the gospel and his messengers, which is all of us who are saved. Understand that God is sovereign over his enemies. And realize that we also live out the same conviction in the sovereignty of God that the apostles did. This was the divinely wrought certainty that had long ago made the final decision in their minds. This was the joy that came from that certainty. The apostles never for a moment complained of the injustice they had suffered at the hands of the authorities. They did not boast of their own courage or fortitude or concern themselves about defending their personal honor against the shame inflicted on them. If they thought of themselves at all, It was only that they might prove faithful to the Lord by working for the honor of his great blessed name. All else they committed to his hands. That last two sentences I want to challenge you with is the invitation this morning for those of us who are born again believers. May it be that our goal is that we might prove faithful to the Lord by working for his honor. In the honor of his blessed name. And may all else, may we commit into his faithful hands. He is our sovereign God. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, understand that he is the creator, John chapter 1. He's eternal God. He took upon him... The form of a servant was made in the likeness of man. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He took on human flesh, but not the sin nature that all of us have inherited. He lived a perfect, sinless life. Willingly went to the cross in complete innocence to take upon himself as that final great sacrifice as the Lamb of God, the guilt of our sin. He died and shed his blood, making full payment. It's a final payment for Jesus cried out on the cross before he yielded up his spirit. It is finished. The price was paid. The sacrifice of redemption was complete. Three days later, Jesus being God, conquered death and rose again. He's the living son of God. 
And right now today, he will forgive you of your sin and give you everlasting life. But you must stop opposing him. You must stop waiting for more evidence. Respond to the evidence he has already given you. By faith, repent of your sin and of your unbelief. Put your faith in him as the Savior today. And brothers and sisters in Christ, may we continue to proclaim his name knowing that God is sovereign. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? (laughs) Father, so often in the moment-by-moment spiritual battles we face, those wonderful opportunities where we have a chance to take a gracious, firm stand for your truth and for the honor of your name, we sometimes see the opposition. We feel the suffering of the persecution. And we are tempted to forget that you are sovereign. But as we obey you, Lord, we know that you will give us your full protection. That you will, through your grace, provide the wisdom that we need in that moment. You'll bring back, even to our mind, the very scripture passages that we need in order to proclaim the gospel the compassion of Christ to lovingly persuade those who have not yet trusted in you. But you must do the saving. And Lord, whatever the cost, whatever the suffering is within your will for us, as we obey the Great Commission, may we, like the apostles, rejoice that you have saved us, that you would count us worthy to suffer shame for your name, that you would put in us an oversense an overwhelming sense of awe and gratitude that you have entrusted to us the same great commission, the same glorious gospel. Thank you, Lord. May we rejoice in the incredible transformation that's taken place in our lives through the grace that you've given us as we were born again and became a new creation through Christ Jesus. Now, Lord, we pray in this invitation time that those who have never received the gift of eternal life would accept that gift by faith. And that those of us who have accepted that gift by faith would worship you as our sovereign God, acknowledging that we are in spiritual warfare, understanding that you are sovereign even over your enemies, and with great confidence in knowing that even persecution by those your enemies may be part of your will for our lives. Help us, like the apostles, to not cease to teach and to preach the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, there may be sin in the lives of some believers here this morning that is yet unconfessed, harbored in hearts that has caused a coolness in their spirit towards your gospel. And I pray, Lord, that you would work and reveal that in the lives of those of us who are your children, in which that would be our spiritual condition. We may make that right before you. And as vessels that are clean and fit for your use, Lord, would you pour us out as a sacrifice into the lives of others for your glory. So, Lord, move now in our midst this morning in Jesus' name. In a moment, I'm going to have you stand. I'll be down here in the front. I'll turn off my microphone. If you'd say, Pastor Todd, man, God's been working in my heart. I've been rejecting the truth of the gospel. I see it in others. I know it's real in my heart. I keep asking for more evidence. 
not believing and accepting that evidence you've already given me. I'm going to encourage you. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is the opportunity for you. So in a moment, we're going to stand, our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Our musicians will play their, the hymn, but don't keep your eyes closed if this is your need. Would you come forward? I'll be here in the front. Just say, Pastor Todd, I want to get things right with God. I'll know what you mean. If you're a man, we'll have a man take the word of God and help you. If you're a lady, we'll have a lady take the word of God, take you to a quiet place, sit down and show you from the word of God the way of salvation. It will only take a few minutes. They'll answer any questions you have from the Bible. And you can just simply call out by faith, put your trust in Jesus Christ, ask him to forgive you and to save your soul, and he will do so. My brothers and sisters in Christ, the altar is open. Come here to these front steps and kneel and pray. Maybe there are people you need to pray for in giving the God to give the gospel. Maybe situations at work in your extended family. Maybe some other urgent need that is on your heart. Please come and pray. If you'd like someone to pray along with you, please let me or one of the other pastors know that. They'll be at these other front aisles. And we'll have someone pray with you and encourage you. If you're a believer and you'd say, I need some biblical counsel or further training, please let one of us know that. We'll make sure that you get that help. Let's do business with God right now. Shall we stand? Our heads are bowed. Our musicians playing our hymn of invitation. Would you respond?